Uh, good morning, Grace Church. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. It's a privilege to open up the Word of God with you today and grow by it as the Spirit enables. What we're going to do today is dig around the roots of Romans 9, 17, and 18 a bit more. I dig deeper into the heart of the issue. Uh, consider the good effects of the sovereignty of God upon our souls. And how God's eternal purposes, how His power, how His proclamation of His name, and His extending mercy or dispensing justice should impact us every day. That's what we're going to do today. Most of all, I want you to see the, the bullseye. I want you to see the central focus of this passage and how really all of Scripture points to this, the glory of God. And how the righteous freedom of God displays God's radical God-centeredness. It displays his radical God-centered glory. And so please, if you can, stand with me. I'm going to read Romans 9, verses 14 to 18. I realize that some of you may want to go quicker through the word of God. But I also believe it's essential to digest these passages in Romans slowly. And God is in no rush. He knows what he's doing in us and through us, day by day, alongside brothers and sisters in Christ, striving together for the gospel. And I truly believe there is a God-glorifying reason for us to be in Romans now as a church. So Romans 9, 14 to 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence with us today. And I pray, Lord, that you would have your way in our hearts such that we would not try to come up with other explanations but what your word clearly says. That we, in our hearts, in our homes, amongst your church and out in the community, would desire above all to give glory to your name. And to live in such a way as we are yielded to your purposes, Lord, that you would use us for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Motives matter. Why you do something matters a lot. Let's just say that you decide to do something good, but your motives are wrong. For example, let's say you volunteer at a homeless shelter, but the reason why is because you want people to see you volunteering at a homeless shelter. You, you want to be noticed, and what's going to happen is you may not continue doing it if you don't get enough attention, if you don't get noticed enough. But our motives matter. Why we do what we do matters. And it matters supremely why God does what he does. We never think that God does anything from a wrong motive. But this is the accusation that Paul was anticipating 
when he says in Romans 9, 14, is there any injustice in God? And the quick answer was, no way in the whole world. God was doing nothing wrong in choosing some and in not choosing others. He is not acting unrighteously. He is not doing anything wrong. He is always, always good and right and just. And he is always absolutely and perfectly consistent with who he is. Last week we saw what God does and why he does it. In Romans 9, 14 to 18, we see clearly the righteous freedom of God to extend grace and to exercise justice. We like the grace, we don't like the justice. The toughest truth to accept, that God dispenses justice as he pleases. Righteous freedom to give justice to whomever he wills, his own decision, not due to any human activity. And so we saw God's purpose, ultimate aim, to glorify himself. Verse 17, the scripture says to Pharaoh, God says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up. I caused you to be alive. I allowed you to appear. I brought you forward on the stage of human history for my purposes. Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. In fact, turn with me to Exodus chapter 9 in your Bibles. In your Bible, it goes Genesis and then Exodus. These are words that God gave Moses to say to Pharaoh after the plague of boils had covered the land of Egypt. Put your eyes at verse 13. Start there. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning, present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time... I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. And then God says, for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. God's saying, I could have done this. I could have wiped you out. Verse 16. But for this purpose, I have raised you up. I have let you exist to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Goes on, you're, you're still exalting yourself against my people. You will not let my people go. And so you got the 10 plagues, you got a sea splitting miracle, you got the Red Sea, you got God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh doesn't listen. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Pharaoh sins grievously. And God ordained it to multiply his glory. God orchestrating his glory. When did he first say he would do it? Not just here in chapter 9. He said it back in chapter 4, verse 21. He said it back in chapter 7, verse 23. Before Moses was in Egypt. What we see here is that God arranged... For Pharaoh to sin, in much the same way he arranged Joseph's brothers to sell him into into slavery in Egypt. Genesis 50, verse 20, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. In much the same way that he allowed Satan to attack Job, Job 1, 12. In much the same way that he had the Jews and Romans crucify Jesus. 
Acts 2.23 says this was from the foreknowledge, the preordained plan of God. And those who put him to death, 100%, 100% responsible for their own sins. It was in the plan of God. And so what you see, God hates sin. But it is good in God's plan that evil is in the world. It brings God glory, and therefore it's important and integral part of his, God, of his good purposes. All for his glory, all for his name. What you see with Pharaoh is gospel glory through an enemy of God. Gospel glory through an enemy of God. And, and Paul, in verse 18, draws the further conclusion. Okay then, there is no injustice with God. He does as he pleases. He does as he wills. This is the purpose Pharaoh was allowed to exist, the reason why he was raised up as a leader. You see God's righteousness. It is righteousness consisting in the revelation of his saving power and his good purposes, his mercy and even his justice that results in the proclamation of his name and his character into all the earth. God vindicates his freedom to do whatever he pleases in mercy and also in justice, to reveal his name. Uh, mercy and, and hardening, mercy and justice are opposites, and both exist because of the will of God. They both depend on the will of God. And so what you see here, and not just in Romans chapter 9, but in Exodus and elsewhere in the Bible, God's righteous freedom announced in the most stunning of ways. Now, reference to Pharaoh has caused a lot of people to think that this passage in Romans 9 is only about the historical destiny of Egypt, not about individual salvation. And there are a lot of reasons why that's not true, why it is about individual salvation. Now, you have to acknowledge that the context of Exodus the narrative there relates to Israel's destiny. But Pharaoh, even in Exodus, was clearly an unbeliever. He was against God. The reference to Pharaoh in Romans 9, though, is grounded in the Romans' context, and the hardening of Pharaoh is matching up with the Israelites of Paul's day. And the issue at hand was, why are there so many who don't believe? Why are there so many individual people rejecting Christ? This is applying to salvation. The chapter begins where he is grieved over the unbelief of so many Israelites. It applies to salvation. Mercy, just scattered throughout this passage. Mercy, that's a salvation word. You've got the word hardening, and there's several words related to it that shows someone's insensitivity to the gospel message where they refuse to believe. Hinders people from being saved. But there's ample evidence in this text that the, that the theory that it refers to corporate identity, entities, only isn't true. Here's another reason. Paul is consistently using singular words in this passage. The one who wills, the one who runs, verse 16. This is about individual salvation. God hardens whomever he wills, verse 18. Now, it doesn't exclude national concerns. But what concerns Paul is why do so many people reject Christ? 
And so you can't play the corporate and the individual against one another in this passage. When you see that in verse 17, that it was on account of God's reasons, it was God's purposes that brought it about. God is clearly saying this. What, What it does is just intensifies the purpose for which Pharaoh was raised up. It was in accord with and determined by God's will. There was no other reason why he was on the stage of of human history except by the will of God. God made him exist. God made him stand. That reflects God's sovereignty in establishing what occurs. God freely does as he pleases. And by the way, his choices are better and purer and stronger and more holy than ours. Infinitely better than ours. God's purpose. We also saw God's power, still in verse 17, God's power put on display to display his great glory. He says that I might dis- show my power in you, demonstrate my ability, display my mighty deeds. Pharaoh existed as ruler of Egypt precisely for the purpose of God displaying his willingness and his ability to save his people. It was for his glory. It was 100% God's unilateral call. God's power being displayed in accordance with the saving power of the gospel. Paul uses the same term that he uses in Romans 1.16, power of God. And it's relating not just to his mercy, but also his wrath, his justice. Power of God, where he is acting to free Israel, but also to inflict judgment on Pharaoh. Same power of God, same purpose of God, all for God's glory. For his proclamation of his name, uh, his glorious name, verse 17, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That means that who I am in all my glory will be proclaimed in all the earth. My name, God says, my person, my reputation, my character, my holiness, my glory might be proclaimed, might be declared, might be told. Because God is absolutely committed to advertising his glory throughout the entire universe and show his goodness and show his grace and show his justice as he freely chooses. He's God. It's it's part of the godness of God that we need to celebrate. And what this ought to do, if you're a believer today, this ought to give you maximum confidence to go to work tomorrow morning. And to face the person that's really difficult to work with. Or to deal with whatever you're dealing with in life in a way where you don't say, you know, is God wobbly? Is he going to break down? Is he going to not come through? He's all powerful. This should give you confidence to safely and securely navigate whatever you're going through in life. And operate under his sovereign hand, trusting his motives are pure. And knowing that he always does what is true, right, and best. He will combine the best and the worst in your life to bring himself glory and it will be for your good. This is what Romans 8, 28 tells us. For a believer, you can say confidently, God is working all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But if you somehow think that God isn't able and that somehow he's you know, gonna waver then you're not going to go out tomorrow morning or even this afternoon with confidence in who God is. God wants you to be confident in who God is. Romans 9, 17 is pointing back to the book of Exodus. 
and this powerful international proclamation of God's glory, and there's a reason for it. Why was the proclamation so powerful? The reason it was so powerful is because God is so patient. He is forbearing. He is, uh, he is working through human events. And do you notice he doesn't immediately strike Pharaoh down the first time he says, I'm not going to let your people go because he's patient. And what you notice is that Pharaoh's prolonged resistance against God is going to lead to a much more dramatic display of the power of God. It's going to lead to this dramatic international proclamation of God's greatness. Think of it this way. If, if Pharaoh had rolled over the first time Moses asked him to release the people, we wouldn't have the grand display of the power of God in the Red Sea. So you get this powerful international declaration of the strong hand and the mighty arm of God, the, the awesome redeemer of his people. This celebrates the glory of God. He glorifies himself for his name's sake, his choice, his action. It's what the psalmist said in Psalm 111, verse 4. It says that God has caused his wonders to be remembered. God has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. You can flip through your Bible and over and over again see all the wondrous works that God has done, remembered in the infallible, inerrant, inspired, authoritative word of God. You could flip through one of your journals through the years and see how God has come through again and again and again. He keeps all his promises. You can just retrace your life a bit and see that God causes his wondrous works to be remembered, whether it's when you remember getting saved by Jesus or just his, his faithfulness every step of the way through your life. God works wonders to proclaim his greatness and display his power. Psalm 111 verse 4, the whole verse says, he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He works wonders to proclaim how awesome he is, that we would revel in how awesome he is. Think about everything he's done. You go all the way back to the Genesis flood. Go all the way back to the Genesis flood, and here is God ordaining water to quickly cover the earth. And what he is doing in, in that act is embedding proof for millennia in the earth's strata that can be discovered by geologists and can be seen by the naked eye. How awesome God is that he caused water to cover the earth quickly. There's a clear target here. There's a very clear aim. It's God's glory. Now, I know if you're a believer, you're going to say, well, you know, I've always been taught that the right answer is always Jesus. Like, when in doubt, just answer Jesus, right? Well, when in doubt, answer the glory of God, God's glory. Jesus is the glory of God. His name proclaimed in all the earth. It's God's prerogative. It's God's choice that it happens. He dispenses mercy. He dispenses justice as he wills. It is his exclusive right because he has the highest rank in the universe. No one outranks God. Verse 18, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. 
He saves and doesn't save whomever he wills for the glory of his name. It brings God joy to have mercy and to harden. God hates sin, but he hardens people, bringing himself maximum glory. You do a simple reading. Just do a simplest reading of Exodus chapters 4 to 14. And then you do a simple reading of Romans chapter 9, verses 17 and 18. It will indicate to you that God decided, directed, drove Pharaoh's choice to harden his own heart. God's hardening of Pharaoh comes before, it precedes, and then undergirds, it gives a foundation for Pharaoh's self-hardening. If you don't come to that conclusion, you're imposing something on the text to say that God's hardening is somehow his response to the hardening of humans. What Romans 9.18 does, when, it, when God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will harden whom I will harden, that doubles down on the fact that faith is a gift from God. That faith is completely a gift from God. Now, if that doesn't sound right to you, ask this question. Are we the determiners of the truth about what motivates God? Are we the determiners about what motivates God? Are we going to base our conclusions on our feelings about what God should do and what we think is right? Or are we going to base our conclusions on what God has said in his word about what motivates him? The word alone must be authoritative for us in this regard. Ask yourself, can I bow before the throne of God without question? Or do I need to call the shots in relation to what God should do? How he should act? We need to accept that God is glorified in the glorification of some and the condemnation of others. He orchestrates all things for maximum glory to his name. And, and what do we lose from, for, from giving God maximum glory? What do you lose? Nothing but presumed control. Nothing but presumed control. So receive the truth that God is 100% free to choose apart from us and celebrate that immovable, solid foundation. Then you go to work tomorrow, or go to school tomorrow, or go into your neighborhood tomorrow, with confidence that God is God. You celebrate the godness of God. We aren't God. Yeah, how many proofs do we need? God is God, and he will not share his glory with another. And, and what you can do is you can recount. You can recount how many times that you have had the opportunity, the privilege to open up the scriptures and give soul-transforming gospel truth and it was rejected. Someone you desperately wanted to see saved. They rejected Christ. You shared the gospel and they rejected Christ. And it tore you up like, like, it tear, like it tore Paul up. Pain like Paul dealt with. Grief over unbelief. And, and here's what you, you say. Okay, temporary outcome looks the way it is. But the eternal outcome, that's in God's hands. I'm not responsible for how this person responds. I love this person. I want them to come to know Christ. But God knows what he's doing. And he calls us to be faithful. He calls us to be engaged in following him and loving him and worshiping him and getting the gospel out. But we do not bear responsibility for the outcome. It's in his hands. You know why? 
Because God's God. The gospel is God-centered. A lot of people have been taught a very man-centered version of the faith. This teaches us the God-centered truth. And so you know what else you can do? You can rehearse in your heart and, and with other believers. How many times? God has shown himself faithful in your life. That God has shown how good he is how great he is you can recount how many times god has come through how he has opened hearts to the gospel and how he has saved people and you can praise the excellency of the grace of god because his number one goal his bullseye goal is to glorify himself and he wants you to glorify him as well and by the way we, we like to say do we not that we have free will and we like to say that we have free will and no one determines the outcome except us. And it's just not totally true. I mean, you didn't decide to be born. But we think that we choose everything we do, and we do to an extent, but we are heavenly influenced by unseen actors. I mean, we're just in the most mundane aspects of life. Every product you buy is influenced by some sort of marketing. You don't realize how influenced you are by your family and friends. Even things you don't realize are happening, you don't realize how influenced you are. That our choices are not fully our own, but we must fully own the responsibility for our choice and the consequences of our choice. Think about technology for a moment. Probably almost all of us have some sort of device, an iOS device or an Android device, and what you don't realize sometimes is that technology, that people can track you and influence your actions and choices. They could put a digital fence even around this property and basically pull things off your phones and find out where you've been online. Yeah, kind of scary, huh? And, and your online activity is being tracked, and, and the digital fence captures the info and then is sold to Data brokers or data brokers, however you want to pronounce that. The bottom line is this. If mankind can do that to us, why do we begrudge God planning all things while holding our, us 100% accountable for every choice? Motive matters. People are working overtime in, in data to shape your choices, and they have selfish reasons. They want you to buy. They want you to vote. They want you to do things. But God has his glory in mind. God has our good in mind. So focus on the reason God does what he does. It's all good. It's all pure. It's all great. It, it, the bullseye is the glory of God. The central focus of this passage, but not only this passage, the word of God. The central focus of the Bible. The righteous freedom of God displaying his radical, God-centered glory. Glory is the God-ordained goal, and it will happen because he's God. Verse 18, you got mercy and hardening together. God is going to show mercy to some, and he's going to harden others, and both are his sovereign choice, and both redound to his glory. God hardens in a way that brings him glory, and the present condition of those that you are trying to reach for Christ, um, is not necessarily 
the end of the story for any who are still breathing. We, we need to beg people to come to Christ. We need to, we need to um, pour out our hearts and let them know how much we want them to come to Christ. God works for his glory. It is always better, by the way, to, to yield to God and to, to come humbly before him and have a high view of him and a lower view of ourselves because he's the best master. He doesn't manipulate us. He does what is best. The ultimate fact is that God will be glorified. He is glorified in a believer's salvation and sanctification and glorification. He is even glorified in those who reject him. And he is glorified in everything that he has orchestrated because he has done those things, he has orchestrated those things for his maximum glory. We accept that by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. So how should this change your life? How should God's eternal purpose, his power to save, his proclamation of his name, his prerogative to extend mercy or exercise justice, how should that impact you on a daily basis? How should this change the way you live? How, how should the, the ultimate reason for God to do what he does drive you on and give you purpose in your life? The glory of God. How should the glory of God affect you? How should having the highest view of God affect your life? It matters supremely. The answer to that matters supremely. And here's the answer. Because God is all glorious and he's going to work for his glory, you can lean the entire weight of your soul upon him. You don't have to worry if he's wobbly or weak or that he's somehow going to run out of power to act on your behalf as a believer for his glory and your good. You can trust the full weight of your life upon God. You can rest the full weight of your marriage, your singleness, your anxiety, your family, your work, your school, your issues, whatever it is, everything can be put onto him. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. It matters so much. It matters so much because the things we face in life are confusing. And the things we face in life seem to not make sense. And, and we are tempted to say, God's not fair. And a proper view of God's sovereignty leads you to contentment, holy contentment, even if everything seems to fall apart or everything seems to be a complete mess. Maybe you're grieving. Maybe you're grieving as the parent or a sibling of someone who has just gone off the rails and walked away from the faith. They're wayward. They're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Maybe you're suffering something that you think could never be healed or changed. Maybe you're battling an addiction that keeps you trapped and battered and bruised. Maybe you're longing for something 
that is just outside your reach or seems very far away from your reach at the present time. Maybe you're just navigating numerous hardships, even from the past, that come back sometimes on a daily basis. Maybe it was a stillborn child. Or maybe it's abortion guilt and regret. Maybe it was an unfaithful spouse. Maybe it was a bad financial decisions to just wrecked your family severely. Maybe it was being too focused on present success and accolades that you get. Maybe, maybe it's the schoolyard bully or the cyber bully. And I realize, you know, despite our best effort, that still exists. Maybe, maybe you're battling an, an angry heart or a, a judgmental heart. Don't we go back and forth between godliness and ungodliness? As we're following Christ, uh, we go through seasons of victory and seasons of defeat. We go ebb and flow, and we know how, how much sin infects us and affects us. It affects our hearts, it affects our homes, it affects the community. We, we have frustrating relationships, we have shaky marriages, we have rebellious kids, we have demanding jobs, and they're all pushing on our trust in God. Life is not easy, life is hard. And we go through trying times. What holds us up? What holds you up? The presence of God holds us up. Faith in Christ, the anchor of our souls, holds us up. You know that God's freedom to do whatever he wants actually frees believers to rest secure no matter how fierce the storm is? Job say, Job said, when he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. Paul David Tripp, speaking of hardships, said, the hardships we face are often God's new morning mercies. He hasn't abandoned us, but he's using what is hard to rescue us, to mature us, and to draw us close. Think about how patient God is, how forbearing God is, how, how kind he is. And he has promised to be with every believer. He is with us always. When we were at the beginning of Romans 9, I remember saying that a solid belief in the sovereignty of God should give us an increasingly, increasingly God-centered view of life. And increasingly more unity in the body of Christ. An increasing fervent evangelism. But just think about God-centeredness and think about unity in the body of Christ for a moment. We need those desperately. We desperately need to be God-centered. We desperately need unity in the body of Christ. What we need to do, and this is how God's designed it, you lean hard on Christ, and you lean on your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you let them lean on you. You sit in the presence of God. You love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. You worship him, and then you support God's people, and you're supported by God's people. R.C. Sproul often spoke of coram deo, Latin term that literally means in the presence of or before the face of God. The idea is to live your entire life in the presence of God under the authority of God to the glory of God. And he said this, living under divine sovereignty involves more than a reluctant submission to sheer sovereignty that is motivated out of a fear of punishment. It involves recognizing that there is no higher goal than offering honor to God. Our lives are to be living sacrifices offered in the spirit of adoration and gratitude. 
And along with Coram Deo is, is another Latin term, commun- communio sanctorum, the, the community of the saints, the community of believers, the church. And when do you need that most? In pain, in suffering, when you carry each other, when you allow yourself to be carried, when you bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Someone I know has been grieving the death of a loved one. People are grieving death of loved ones all the time. And they're grieving the death of a loved one, and I've been trying to comfort them, and a lot of people are comforting them. And this person wrote to me yesterday and said this, the grief comes unannounced, but the hope is ever-present. The grief comes unannounced, but the hope is ever-present. And then this person wrote and said, I am looking forward to sweet fellowship at Grace tomorrow. That's today. You don't know who you're going to run into today that needs your word of encouragement, that needs your word of hope in their life, whatever they're going through. We want God-centered fellowship. We want God-centered longing for fellowship with his people because life in Christ is not a solo effort. You want to talk about the sovereignty of God? Then if you have a, a huge view of the sovereignty of God, you will know that life in Christ is not a solo effort. The Holy Spirit lives in you. You live in the presence of God with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You live in real time. You experience God. You worship God. You, you enjoy God. You live a life of worship moment by moment with your brothers and sisters in Christ. I just love how God is so gloriously God-centered. In everything he does, he pursues and accomplishes his glory. We should be very joyful about that. By the way, if he was pursuing our glory, something would be wrong. And I want you to know that God's goal is not merely to wean you off of self-centeredness. God's goal is to rip it from you. God's goal is to rip self-centeredness from us so that we would rest in peace under the sovereign hand of God. With God's glory is our highest aim, our deepest goal. God does everything he does for his name's sake. He's the ultimate determiner. The ultimate reason is for his glory. And it's not just in Exodus 4 through 14. It's not just in Romans 9. This is the point of the whole Bible. The whole Bible. This is the point. God's goal. The bullseye is to glorify himself. To glorify himself in creation and in salvation. The entire Bible is screaming this truth to us. He discloses himself to humanity in the word of God. He shows how he created and then rescues his creation. The ultimate reason for his acts of creation and rescue is to bring glory and honor to himself. This is what Habakkuk 2.14 tells us. God's reason, his purpose, to fill the earth with the knowledge of God and his glory as the waters cover the sea. Have you looked at the ocean recently? Pretty vast. God acts to put himself on glorious display. Isaiah 42, verses 8 and 9. He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved idols. Psalm 106, verse 2. The psalmist is praising God's glory. His mighty deeds performed to Israel. He goes to the gold standard of God's deliverance. He goes to the Red Sea. The Red Sea. Rescuing them from Egypt. 
to the Red Sea. And he says in Psalm 106, verse 7, Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindnesses, but rebelled at the sea, at the Red Sea, like even at the Red Sea. This is like us. We, ha- we see God do something amazing for his glory, and then the next thing you know, we're rebelling. We're going wayward. And then it says this, nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name that he might make his power known. God had mercy on his people. God wanted to free them from slavery. And his ultimate aim was God-centered. He saved them for the sake of himself. You go to the, the golden calf incident, Exodus 32. You know what that does? In the Old Testament, that sets the stage for all the further unfaithfulness of the people of Israel to God throughout the rest of the Old Testament. They could not keep covenant with God. God, the covenant-keeping God, the all-glorious God, he tells them, he says, when you get in the promised land, you get in the land of Canaan, you drive out the pagan nations. They didn't do it. They provoked God to anger. They forsook Yahweh, who saved them out of Egypt. And over and over again, this is what you see, over and over again. Through the ages, Israel kept breaking covenant with God. And God foretells a new covenant. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi. In Ezekiel 36, verse 22, he says, Say to the house of Israel, tell them, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you profaned before the nations. He says, I will vindicate my holiness of my great name that the nations would know that I am the Lord. And God is driving home the bullseye with the people of Israel. And then, 400 years of silence. And then, an angel visits a childless priest and says, your barren wife will bear a son and you'll call him John. He's going to be the forerunner to the promised Messiah, Savior of Israel. Good news, great joy on the way. Dawning of the promised son of righteousness. And God fulfilled in Christ the promises he made. Luke 1, 69. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old to show mercy towards our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to Abraham. God sets out to magnify his name for his own sake. And he sends the promised deliverer, the glorious savior and king to save his people from sin and make them worshipers in spirit and in truth. Jesus, seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15. Fully God, fully man. Jesus, the seed of Abraham promised in Genesis 12. Jesus, the faithful Israelite, lived in perfect obedience to the Father, embodied what a faithful Israelite was supposed to be, fulfilled the law perfectly. Jesus, the righteous deliverer, necessitated by, because of the people's sins. You see it in Judges, you see it in Samuel and elsewhere. 
Jesus, the son of David. 2 Samuel 7, the promised king who would reign upon his throne forever. You see, Jesus Christ, through his substitutionary death and resurrection, this mediator of the new covenant, this, this one who brings forgiveness of sins, brings the presence of the Holy Spirit, by him alone, through faith in him alone, apart from works, we can be restored to fellowship with our creator. All of history culminating in the life and ministry of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope, I hope with me that you can grasp the God-centeredness of this story, the God-centeredness of this plan, the Godness of God in glorifying himself. Everything he has given to put his glory on display in man's redemption through Jesus Christ the King. The primary thing, the primary thing, God himself in his glory. Predestination is big. It is not primary. It's one of the ways God works his purposes. But in the end, it's about the glory of God. All day long, through eternity. Will you pray with me? Lord, we know that in the end, it's a matter of faith or unbelief. Are we going to believe you and your word? Are we going to trust Jesus, the sovereign difference maker in a sin-soaked world, our soul's anchor? Keep us locked in on the bullseye, Lord. Keep us locked in on the target of your glory. We see your gospel glory, Lord, in the word. We rejoice in your sovereign, righteous freedom. We, we, we see you displaying your glory. We, we want to bow before your throne. We want to acknowledge your greatness over all. We want to praise Jesus who captured our hearts, who chose us, who we believe because of him. He, he took us from death to life. He, he opened our blind eyes. He took our sin upon himself. He died for us. He cleanses us by his precious blood. All praise to you, Lord. All praise to the Lord Jesus Christ who did all of this for his glory. In his name we pray, amen.